yeah. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very, very special episode 15 of the Sailor Jerry podcast. I can uh, barely, barely contain myself. The energy, the excitement, it's all happening. It's all about to spill out into your ears, into your hearts, into your minds, into your souls. Sailor Jerry Spiced Rum has made the old school way. 92 proof, bold and smooth as hell. My name is Matt Cothran, and I am your host on this anniversary edition. 15 years of Bronx 2. Special, special edition of the Say the Jerry podcast. Man, summertime is in full swing. In California, the sun is shining. It has been hot as hell. I am currently bunkered down in the Say the Jerry podcast headquarters. Gathering intel. Confirming my sources. And recovering from an epic Sunday night drum circle, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if anybody out there fucks with drum circles. I know they're pretty taboo, but here in Huntington Beach, we got one of the greatest drum circles of all time. It is a ragtag group of rhythm renegades that meet up every Sunday around 4 p.m. until the sun sets to collectively freak the fuck out in what can only be described as a absolutely horrendous display of drumming and rhythmic percussion. But ladies and gentlemen, it is quite possibly the most entertaining thing you will ever see. It's a very chaotic, unsettling type of energy. All types in the drum circle. There is no interview process, no screening process. We got people from all over the world, and I say we like I'm part of it. I wanna be, but I'm too scared. I'm not part of it, maybe one day. Now I'm just an outsider. I feel like it's my responsibility to document the scene. You know what I mean? So that's all I'm trying to do here. But it's all walks of life, no rules in the drum circle. You know, you got people that have built these outrageous homemade professional instruments. You got, you know, the rain stick guy. You got the belly dancer chick. You got the burning man rejects. You got the, you know, the drummers that have been kicked out of every band. Uh, You got, you know, the random, you know, spirit warriors. Uh, You got... Uh, the insane asylum escapees. You got old people, young people, loaded people, sober people. Last night there was this old guy just chilling there right in the middle of the drum circle in the heartbeat just playing with a slinky. I mean, it's hard to understand even when you're there looking at it, taking it all in. It just blows the mind one of my favorite characters at the drum circle is someone I call the screamer 
He's this guy, kind of looks a little bit like Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks. Dreadlocks, blue jeans, always looking a bit disheveled. And all he does is scream. Anyways, I was able to record a little bit of it last night. Figured I'd share it with you guys just so you can dive in to the chaos a little bit. So here we go. Here's a little snippet of the screamer. (laughs) Like I said, ladies and gentlemen, very chaotic energy. All right, it's time for episode 15. The date was July 18th, 2006, on a Tuesday, when the Bronx released our second studio album and major label debut on Island Def Jam Records. The self-titled record, affectionately referred to as Bronx 2 in the Streets, was produced by the notorious Michael Beinhorn and recorded in Venice Beach, California at the Paladrome right off of Market Street and just steps from the Venice Beach Boardwalk. Now, if I'm doing my math right, that means that this week is the 15-year anniversary, ladies and gentlemen, which is a monumental occasion for us and reason enough to look back at the record and celebrate it and tell anyone out there who gives a fuck the stories and the experiences behind it. So that's what we're doing, ladies and gentlemen. Get your scuba gear on, because we're taking a deep dive into Bronx too. I'm going to be talking with the producer, the one and only Michael Beinhorn. We're going to go through the whole process. You know, Michael and I, we butted heads a lot during this record, man. He broke me down. And so it was really cool to catch up with him and rap with him and look back on the record together. I'm also going to be talking with Bronx guitarist and founding member, the one and only Joby J. Ford. And we're going to break the album down track by track and just kind of go through every song and, and, and see what pops up. Also, I think it's really important before we get started that I set the table a little bit here. The Bronx was formed in 2002 signed a record deal, and released our first record in 2003 on Ferret Records. Now, Island Def Jam came into the picture for record two, but it was very important that we got that first record under our belts, onto the road, because we were very much feral dogs at this point, ladies and gentlemen. And so it was pretty crazy. To go from basically not being a band to being a band, getting signed after three songs, putting out a self-titled record, touring all over the world. You know, people were into the band, and then here we go. We're going in to record this major label debut with a big shot producer, and from everything that we hear, we're about to get our asses kicked. You know, we wrote a lot of demos, but no way we were ready for this. I also want to give a big shout out to the original Bronx lineup. I'm talking about Jormovic on drums and James Tweedy on bass guitar. 
This record does not happen without those two individuals. Nothing but love to those guys. And Jorma's playing in Eagles of Death Metal. And James is living up in Canada. And, uh, you know, we shared a lot of amazing memories together. And so I, I, I got to make sure to give those guys their props and to give them their love because they were a big part of this process. So, consider the table set. Turn the lights down. Light some candles. Get out the Ouija board. Pour yourself some Sailor Jerry. And let's go. Michael Beinhorn. Hey, good to see you. It's nice to see you too, man. It's been a while. It's been a long, it's been a long ass time, man. A are long you, ass time. You in LA? Where are you at? I'm in Canada, dude. Oh, so you did make it into Canada. I made it into Canada. Nice, man. Congratulations. Uh, I can't believe, honestly, that it's been 15 years since we made a record together. And, you know, before we kind of dive into it a little bit, I just wanted to give people, uh, you know, a little bit of your background. Obviously, you know, I think your, your, your musical journey started in New York with a synthesizer, correct? Would you say that's yep. a fair assumption? You know, that's and then uh, I'm curious because I never got to talk to you about this because at the time, you know, we were making a record and there was other things to worry about. But New York City, 1977, you know, obviously you got punk rock, you got the hip hop happening, you got a whole sound revolution taking place. What was that like for you, that era, just being in the thick of it, being in uh, the beginning of your own kind of creative bubble? Uh, what was that like, man? Oh, man, it was magical. There's no other way to put it. Yeah. I bet. <laughs> it, I bet. It was it was a real renaissance, you know, because New York City was in the pits. It was an absolute hellhole. And what was interesting was that the entire art world was converging on it. Like people are coming from all over the country because they just smelled the stink. <laughs> <laughs> they smelled the city like falling apart. And it was just fertile breeding ground, you know, because already so much had happened there. It was such a great cultural center, but economically it was an absolute disaster. And, um, you know, so artists were being drawn to it from yeah. every part of the country and the world for that matter. And it just became just like the cesspool that it was and <laughs> smelled so bad, by the way. Uh, it, it became this breeding ground for artists who are doing new music, new, new visual art. Like I actually read something this morning on an interview with a guy named Glenn Branca, who is a composer who started in like uh, no wave bands and, and stuff like that. Who'd been an artist who came from Boston, you know, cause he, cause he was attracted to what, what New York had. And you had these, these like industrial spaces, wide open spaces and, you know, like, 
as an artist, you could get like government subsidy and get like an artist's own loft in Soho for like a couple hundred bucks a month. Can you imagine living in a 14,000 square foot loft, you know, <laughs> below 14th street on the Lower East Side for like 200 bucks a month? Oh my God, that would have been amazing. It was. I mean, I remember visiting people. I remember I, I was in someone's loft. I think they might've been squatting. I think it was part industrial space, part like living space. I got, actually got lost trying to find where my friends were. I went to take a piss and they came back and I was like, because <laughs> the ceiling, it was like, it, it was like being in, a, in an airplane hangar. It was incredible. Like it was like Disneyland on, it was like a bad acid trip in Disneyland, but it was fun at the same time. Like, you didn't know if, if you went down the wrong street, if you're going to come out, like, you know, if you're going to walk out or be carried out, like feet first, it was scary. It was exciting. And so much was happening then. It was just, you know, people were having like performances in their lofts. You know, you'd, you'd have bands playing, you'd have like free jazz groups playing their performance spaces all over the city. It was just, it was so intense. You just, And there was just this like, 24 hours a day you could feel this electricity everywhere like it was just so inspiring to be there i mean to me i got buoyed through that whole thing like it just sort of lifted me and and, yeah. and carried me through the whole time i was there it was incredible yeah i mean it's uh it's one of the things i think about a lot i think i missed like all the last of the first waves you know what i mean like it's like it must have been so exciting to be a part of something as it was created you know it's like i i I missed, you know, old New York. I missed the first wave of LA punk. Yeah. I missed all that stuff. And I was around just, you know, second, third wave to know what I missed. You know, I was like, oh my <laughs> God, you know, I wish I could yeah. have been there. And then now I feel like, I, I mean, I don't know if there's ever going to be a first wave of, of, any, of anything <laughs> ever again, <laughs> unfor unfortunately, you know, and if it oh, is, we just went through a first wave of the pandemic. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. That'll work. Right. It's like, I think, yeah. I, unfortunately the last kind of, you know, uh, genre that was created in my existence was probably grunge. You know what I mean? And right. that's, that's, I mean, that's still cool, but it's not, you know, it's not 1977. No, it's not the lower East side. No, no. Definitely no, nothing, not. nothing is the Lower East Side in 1977. Yeah, man. So, <laughs> and by the way, today is uh, Johnny Thunder's birthday. Would have been 69 years old. So, you know, we got to. Today yeah. is Johnny Thunder's birthday. Yeah. yeah. And, and what a perfect number for him as well. <laughs> yeah. and, oh, man. Happy birthday, Johnny Thunder. What, yeah. what a hero. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> okay. So hero. you're. You're coming up, you know, you're working, you're collaborating with different artists, and then you come, how did you come into working with uh, Herbie Hancock for Future Shock? Uh, well, I had a group called Material, and uh, we got approached by Hancock's assistant at that time to work on a record with Herbie. Uh, it was going to be his final record for Sony. And... Um, they wanted us to come up with two pieces of music, so we, we sat there and we kind of we kind of conceptualized this whole thing through and we developed these tracks, you know, when we took him to Los Angeles to play for him and he was completely confused. <laughs> by <laughs> it. See, you know, he, he was actually going to get the boot from, from Columbia at that point. It was, it was Columbia then it wasn't Sony yet. And 
at that point, he he kind of had nothing to lose, but I think he was expecting something more like a pop song. And here we are yeah. throwing this this track with drum machines on it and and scratching and like Afro-Cuban percussion. And he just didn't know what to make of it at all. He was kind of like, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, but we finished it in a few days at his place and we mixed it. And you know, we went home thinking, okay, it's going to be those two tracks because that's all we were asked to do. And a couple of days later, they came back to us and we're like, look, no one else is going to be able to finish this record yeah. to make anything that's going to be comparable sonically or in any other way. So, you know, you guys may as well just like do the whole record. And so at that point, we kind of had free reign to do whatever we wanted. That's so cool, man. That must have yeah, been amazing. And I can imagine him like, you know, not getting it, you know what I mean? Which is the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, it wasn't his world, you know? Yeah. It, it totally wasn't his world. I mean, we kind of conceptualized what would Herbie Hancock have done if he'd stayed on his like trajectory of being this kind of avant, um, fun, you know, jazz, funk, fusion artist who did all this groundbreaking stuff like Chameleon, Watermelon Man, and he didn't go off and make a bunch of pop records. And all of a sudden he like came face to face with hip hop music. What would he do? Well, let's listen to what he would do. Here's a little snippet of the world famous Rocket by Herbie Hancock, co-written and co-produced by Michael Beinhorn. Oh, hell yeah. That's a vibe. So Rocket takes off. You know, MTV just started. So the video age is here. Perfect timing. The song just explodes. The video explodes. And you're smack dab in the middle of it. What was that like? Uh, it kind of blew my mind. You know, I mean, none of us were expecting that. We were just kind of, we're, we're, we're kind of, <laughs> we found ourselves on the back foot, so to speak, <laughs> a little bit. Um, it was crazy. You know, uh, I I remember when the video came out and I just, I saw it and I was so angry. <laughs> it's such a funny story because I was really pissed off because like back then people didn't make videos. Like this was, this, this was one of the first videos. In fact, this, the, this wound up, Herbie's song and video wound up snagging like five VMAs. It was the first year they had the VMAs. So like Herbie actually was like the star of the night for the VMAs for the first ever video music awards. Um, but so I heard this video and I was really pissed off because it didn't align with my, I guess, mental vision of what the song was supposed to be. I mean, I was imagining this kind of like peeing to like black music and it was deep and heavy and like arty and stuff like that. And it just sort of represented to me like his lineage through all this music. And here come these crooky white guys with their robots and dummies, like <laughs> jumping out of closets and toothpaste. And I was like, this makes it look goofy. I was like, I'm never watching this fucking video again. And like a few weeks later, it's on MTV and it goes into heavy rotation. I'm like, oh, well, I, I guess it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, it's not that bad. It's not that bad after all. <laughs> when did it turn into more of a, you know, producer recording type of focus for you? You know, because I, I know, was it shortly after that you linked up with Chili Peppers or how long was that? 
It was a long time. I mean, okay. I actually got booted out of material. Oh, did you roam the wilderness? Did you roam the creative wilderness? <laughs> I roamed the creative wilderness, man. I was like, I was, a, I was a, on the street kicking cans around, oh. stiff, just looking for my next meal. <laughs> I was pretty, I was pretty hard up, and I, I did like one or two records over the course of about three years, but it was really hard to get work. And all of a sudden, I have a meeting with some guy at EMI records and i'm you know i just give him my whole spiel he's like you know i may have something for you and he gives me a tape a demo of the chili peppers (laughs) 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 and that's where that started that's incredible man i mean and yeah you did uh uplift uh party mofo plan right and mother's milk which are i mean two absolutely incredible incredible records what was Thanks. it like? Uh, what was it like tracking those? It was crazy. Yeah. It was pure insanity, you know, because the um, the record company, like obviously no one saw any greatness in these guys at all. You know, I mean, they were kind of like a hodgepodge and they had long hair, but they didn't play metal. They had, you know, they dressed all raggedy. So that like excluded them from just about every band that was on EMI because like, you know, at that point in time, everyone had like big hair and they were well-dressed, you know, or if they were in a metal band, they had the right kind of, you know, white leather stuff on, you know, so like they just, they they were so outside the pale of what these people at EMI knew. So like they despised the Chili Peppers passionately. Um, You know, so like this was a band that no one, literally no one wanted to work with. And of course, who's going to take a job like that but a guy who needs a kick? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's it's a really cool, uh, you know, pairing when you look back at it because, you know, I mean, you are cut from a different cloth, man. I mean, well, you, you always have been, you know, and yeah. I think that that's that that's two kind of creative forces lining up that, you know, you look back on it now, you're like, of course, that made sense. Of course, those records came out the way they did because it's I mean, it's a it's a good pairing in my eye. Yeah, well, I also undersold myself just then a little bit too. I mean, I, I'd actually, I was, I was like on living like hand to mouth at that point. But to be perfectly honest, I was turning down. I, strangely enough, I actually turned down paying jobs because I just couldn't get into the music. And to be perfectly yeah. honest, when I first listened to this demo tape of the Chili Peppers, I was kind of like, oh. <laughs> but no. But I started listening to it again, and I was like, wait, there's something here. This is very strange. Like. I did, there was like some kind of like vibe, something that was happening below the surface. Do you know what I mean? Like there was some yeah. kind of presence to it. And I listened to it more and I realized there was something about these guys that had so much personality and character. And that's really what their essence is right there. There's so much personality and there's like this brotherhood in there. It's very, it's elusive. All you have to do is get the right songs to kind of reflect that. And all of a sudden you got the equation. I'm like, oh, these guys have just never made a record with the right music before. They just need to kind of hone their vision and something great could happen. And well, <laughs> something yeah, did. Yeah, something definitely did, man. That's that's yeah. amazing. And so those records obviously do insanely well. Set the Chili Peppers up for uh, global domination. And then, of course, uh, you know, you hit a motherfucking stride as well, man. I mean, the 90s were insane, you had Soul Asylum's Grave Dancers Union, huge record. And then, of course, uh, the masterpiece that is Soundgarden's Super Unknown. 
what an incredible time. When you are wheeling and dealing like that as a producer, okay, you're just cranking out hot record after hot record, great song after great song, working with these amazing artists. Was it hard to keep like your ego in check? Was it hard? Like, did, were you, how was your life outside of recording at that point? Were you like still yourself, still kind of, you know, the same guy you were, you know, in, in, in the Lower East Side or at this point had your life completely changed? You know, like where were you kind of at personally during, you know, those years when you were just cranking out hits? That's a, actually a really amazing question. Uh, that experience really changed me a lot, you know, I mean, because I was very insecure when I was younger and I, I wasn't any less insecure when I, you know, when I started becoming successful, you know, so that kind of, it just reflects in a completely different way. That's all. All of a sudden I go from like someone who no one knows to like someone who people are, clam you know, clamoring after to get to produce their records. So yeah, that had a pretty profound effect on me. No question about it. You know, I'm mean, personally, things are, things are difficult because I had a, I had a very unusual marriage. <laughs> I wasn't married to someone who was particularly supportive of what I did. So that made it kind of difficult, but it was interesting because creatively it having, having those experiences really kind of, it pushed me into a, a, a level of, I guess, personal expectation in terms of what I did that was on one hand, incredibly unhealthy <laughs> and on the other hand, incredibly uh, fertile creatively. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword in a way. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of balance because of that in my life. Um, so I think that that was definitely a very important takeaway. I had to learn over time how to moderate, but developing an expectation of what one wants, especially if you're in a leadership position, you know, and how one can help other people arrive at that place where they're actually surpassing what it is that they think they're capable of. That's an amazing position to be in. And that's one of the things that I really got from, from that period, you know, seeing how if you apply the right conditions to an artist you're working with, you know, you experienced that to a certain extent with me as well. You know, you can help them arrive at a place that they never imagined they were going to get to on their own. Yeah, man, that's so fucking cool. And I know artist development means a lot to you and uh, it's got to feel so good to help them break down those walls. Oh man, it's it's one of the best feelings that I can that that I, I that I can have, and I would imagine if you're able to relate it to anything in your life that gives you joy, it's the same thing because it's almost like being a parent, like imparting some kind of knowledge or some kind of support, or for that matter, pressure on an artist, where they respond in a way that yields creative fruit. And you can both look at it from different perspectives and go, holy shit. You know, the artist goes, holy shit, did I just do that? And I go, holy shit, did he just do that? You know, <laughs> yeah. what an amazing thing. Because you're both there right at the genesis of something incredible happening. You both see it happen. And you realize that it came out of the ether. It came from someplace else. But it happened. It happened right then. And it's like, wow, 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 wow. That's gold. You know, it's magic. It's incredible. It really is. And it is definitely uh, the reason why we were so excited to work with you. Um, and I was so excited to work with you. 
And, you know, forgive me, but we're going to fast forward a little bit here. I mean, you, your run continues, you know, you got social distortions, uh, white light, white heat, white trash. You're working with Ozzy, uh, Celebrity Skin by Hole, Untouchables by Corn, all this amazing music, all these amazing records, all these amazing artists bringing you to 2005 and your date with destiny, Bronx 2. And you know yeah. where our paths cross for the for the first time. It was <laughs> it was recorded at the uh, at the Palladrome in uh, in Venice Beach, California, uh, on Market Street, right steps to the boardwalk. I mean, you couldn't ask for a cooler spot to record. I mean, it was a massive, massive room. There was it was big. This, yeah, it was basically like a you know a big square pit. Um, you know, in the, in the middle and then a, a kind of stairway that goes up on the left and then a, another kind of stairway that went up on the right to kind of like a, you know, a little crash room or, or shower. And then the, the uh, you know, your room where all the, uh, all the gear was, was up top on the left. And, you know, we walked in there and we started this process. You know, we ended up building Jorma's drum platform for like the first week, something like That's that. Right. And then got yeah. up there. And then, you know, I remember as we kicked off, uh, into pre-production, uh, which was some of the most uh, exciting times, uh, in, you know, in in my young life because it was just it felt so, uh, it, it felt so real, and it, just having you there with us as we were kind of going through the songs, you know, pushing us and pulling us and directing us. Um, it, I just knew that we were starting something uh, that was going to be really, really special, and um, I was just kind of curious. Before kind of we got in deep to the recording process, hearing the songs, hearing demos, stuff like that, what was your kind of consensus of the band before we kind of started, before we got going? Um, I thought it was cool. You know, I mean, I I liked it because it definitely, there was, it, it touched on things that were familiar with me punk rock wise, but there are other things about it that were just, they, they seemed like they were completely off the beaten track. I mean, you guys were clearly not afraid of like rock songs, <laughs> which is impressive because a lot of people who are like punk rock are kind of like, no, fuck that shit. You know, yeah. <laughs> they don't want to know about it, but you guys weren't afraid of that stuff. And then you had a song like Dirty Leaves. And I was like, this is, I, I mean, the treatment lends itself to be so edgy, but it's, and it's not quite a, it's not a ballad, but it's not like a type song either. There, it was, it, it was a, a lot more eclectic and it was touching on a lot more, a lot more different elements. And I was like, this is going to be really cool. And plus there was your voice, oh, you know? Well, thank you. Let's sir. face thank it, you. Matt. I, my, I think my, my voice, honestly, you own, you own a fair percentage of my voice. Cause I, I don't, I don't exist. I don't really have one without you. Let's be honest. But you've been making records for years after we did that one. I, I know, on. but you know, there's so much, you know, it's, it's so crazy. This, this record is, it's such a hindsight record for me because, and we'll, we'll get to it, but I wanted to ask you about how, you know, who to push and when, and how you walk that line as a producer uh, between, you know, being supportive and conducive to the confidence and the comfort zone of the artist verse knowing when to push them out of their comfort zone and piss them off and take them to a place where they can 
elevate their creativity and create something that they never saw coming. For example, I'd never seen anyone push Joby like that in my life. And he wrote, you know, he wrote nonstop. And I, he's been like, and, and that set him up, honestly. Like, we learned so much from you on that record because we learned how to work. You know, it's like we, we learned how to work. And, and it must be, uh, it, it's got to be kind of tricky sometimes navigating that, right? It's rewarding to hear you say that. Thank you. That makes me feel really good. Um, let's put it this way. Every recording is different. Every group of artists is different. Every circumstance is different. You know, one thing I have, which is, excuse me, a personal gift. Actually, it's not. Everyone has this in varying degrees. They just don't know how to work with it, is being vulnerable and open and being able to sense what's going on around them. It's basically animal instinct, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it. I rely on that sense to be able to judge what's going on around me with the people. I mean, it's a little that I'm working with. It's a little esoteric, I know, but, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, I can kind of sense how other people feel. That's how I produce. I'm sensing how everyone's feeling. I'm, I can sense people's frustration. I can tell sometimes what's kind of like nagging at them, what makes them happy. You know, and I have to work with all those things. Like there's certain points where you just know that this is the moment where you got to say something that's going to be like a punch in the face to this guy, but it's going to work. And you just have to trust yourself. Or you get around a person and you go, if I don't say something kind to this person right now, I could fuck this whole recording up. You know, understanding all that stuff and how to work with it is crucial to the way that I work. I mean, sometimes being able to separate myself and go like, okay, I'm not, I, I got to get out of this for a moment. <laughs> that can be hard. So I've had to learn over time how to do that. But it's, you know, that's how I worked with you guys. You know, you're, you're interesting because like there were points in time where you were just kind of like, I can't take this anymore. I'm giving up. I'm done. Um, did you, I, I'm sure you saw that you have that photocopy of that note that you wrote me, right? Yeah. I don't remember what it said. I know Joby's got it. I'm going to talk to him about it, but yeah, I, I, man, I crashed so hard, but it's funny. Cause at that point in, in my life, I was just so like, I just didn't have the skill set or the mental, I took things so personally and in like a lot, like, you know, you were, when you were younger, I was super insecure, and so Hell yeah, man. I just, and, you know, it's I, fine. I took everything and it just, and there was moments where it worked. Like for example, like I was thinking about this today and this is like the best memory I have of the record was recording history stranglers. And uh, there was a moment we were tracking and we were going to the chorus and initially the chorus was, it was just going to be, I want your blood. And, uh, and then I wanted to say motherfucker. And so we, we decided to do a take with the motherfucker in it. And I'd, I can still imagine myself in that little vocal box that we had built, uh, <laughs> you know, in the middle of that room uh, with the headphones on and that chorus just approaching. And that was like the most purest motherfucker I've ever, <laughs> I've ever screamed in my life. And it felt so good. You know, it felt so good. And it was one of yeah. those moments for me that was like, Oh my God, you know, and even listening back to it, I can still feel that. And it's like that record was full of so many, you know, ups and downs for me personally. And it's just like now, like, I feel like now I would be way more equipped to handle 
uh, a Beinhorn record, you know, <laughs> but it's like, but now, but at the same time, I don't know, you know, like, like is getting pushed the same when you know you're ready to be pushed, you know, I feel like you learn more when you, when you're not ready for it, you know? So it's like, there was definitely it, moments it of varies. mine. Yeah. There was moments of mine in the record that, you know, I, I mean, I shut down completely. I mean, you and me at one point, we weren't even, you know, we'll dive into the vocal process here. So we, you know, the <laughs> music's done. Okay. Music's done. And, uh, and it sounds incredible. You know, it's like Jorma just, you know, he smashed the drum takes. Um, oh, you know, they, so, so good. James laid down bass. Joby at that point crushing it. I mean, he was on a, a very heightened level on, on that record. Um, you know, because, because of you, you really, really, uh, you know, brought out the best in Joby. And that was incredible to watch. And I remember kind of like, you know, waiting my turn for that and then being like, shit, like, why isn't this happening to me? I feel like I'm kind of folding. And then I got, yeah. you know, I got in that mental headspace of just like, I was like, fuck, I suck, you know? But so we, yeah. we go into the vocal, we start the vocal process late at night, first song, Small Stone. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's like a 45 second screamer, you know? So we go, we track it probably, uh, you know, maybe four or five, six times at the end of the night. So it's like, you know, you're like, okay, I think, I think we got it. I think we're good. Let's call it for the night, come back in the morning. And this whole time, you know, I'm, I've been at this point, you know, this record, it's been this buildup because everyone's telling me, just wait, dude, Beinhorn is notoriously harsh with vocals. You know, it's going to, it's going to be a really tough road. It's going to be this, it's going to be that. And, uh, and so we get through that first song in like four or five takes. And I'm like, Hell yeah. You know, I got, I got, I got this, <laughs> I got this, you know, and then we get, we show up to the studio the next day and I go up and we're meeting in the, uh, in the, in the room and you're just like, Hey, you know, I listened back to the track and I don't think we got it. And I'm like, okay. And so we go in and then it kind of started the whole vocal journey that we went on for the next, I don't know, two, two months, something like that, maybe even longer. But hmm. uh, you know, it was, yeah, and then shortly after that, I went to Ron Anderson, the man oh, yeah. with the legend. He sent me, kicked me out. He kicked me out of the studio. Sent me to Ron. I had to go see Ron for vocal lessons, and that was honestly the best thing that could have ever happened to me. You know, it's like that's the thing that I truly uh, am so grateful to you for because the process of making this record um, taught me how to be a singer. It taught me how you know to appreciate my own voice how to respect, you know, my own voice and, and how to want to actually be a good singer. You know, it was a, a hell of a fucking process. You know, mm. it was, it was uh, completely maddening at times, but I know what I'm doing now. And I, I feel I, I, I contribute that, you know, hundred percent to you in the process of Bronx too, because thanks, man, man, we went through the ringer, bro. You and I, <laughs> you and I, yeah. you and I went through yeah. it and it was, uh, you know, it was a crazy, crazy process, but you know, I've always wondered, uh, you know, how is that for you as a producer when it's like, you know, you're committed to making an excellent record. You know, you have a bar that you want to uphold and you don't want to let the artist fall short of that. But it's also you're putting your name on this thing. So when the artist hits a wall, what do you do? And, and when, what happens when you hit a wall? Um, well, I mean, you've just described exactly the things that the, the foundation upon which a lot of my aesthetic rests. You know, I can't. I've been. I've taken on. I've taken on a job. 
I have a responsibility to the artist, but more importantly to the project, which is larger than all of us. And I also have to put my name on it. You know, so I have to live with this into perpetuity. I mean, yeah, you guys have to tour the record and live with it with your name on the front, but still that represents part of my, you know, CV or whatever you want to call it. Like with the art, you know, when the artist hits a wall, I mean, you experienced it. You know what, you know what this is like. There's, there's basically only a few directions that you can go once that happens, you know, death or victory, (laughs) you know, when an artist comes to me and says, I don't know that I can do this, or I don't know if I can take any more of this. One of two things, either they are literally done and they're getting ready to fold or they're about to transition to the next level. And it's the transition it's the most painful part of the whole process. I get really choked up about this because it means a lot to me because like I get to be part of like a birth, like it's a very special moment. I happen to know that if someone comes to me the way you did and says that and says it many times, they're not going to fold. They're going through the pain. They're going through the pangs. Like it hurts. It really hurts. Like everything about you is being challenged in that moment. And you feel like you're falling apart. You feel like you're mentally coming, you know, you're going to pieces and you're crumbling. Like everything that mattered to you is, is gone. It's so true. That's the I... best moment of your life. It's the best <laughs> moment of your life because that's the point where you're going to grow. You're changing, you're morphing into something. Change. There's a move in Tai Chi called change is difficult. It's exactly the same thing. Change is always difficult but you don't grow otherwise. You know, what you're telling me, like the aftermath of all this, this means I did my job. Yeah. This means I did my job to hear what you said. I mean, you've made my day actually (laughs) by saying this, because this is what I was, this is why you guys asked me to, to produce your record. This is why I was paid to do it. You know, so that you would have that experience, not only so that you would have a record with a bunch of finished songs. People think that that's the only reason that you hire a producer or that you had, that you do these things. It's not, it's not, it's going through the whole experience of making the record and all the things that you learn in that, you know, you got so much out of that process. I mean, you've given me so much just by, just by sharing that now. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, yeah, no problem, man. I mean, I, it's, it's the thing about life that I love too, is just growing and learning. But you know, at that time I just wasn't, you know, I just, it was, it was just hard for me to handle, man. It was, it was just tough, you know, it was super hard. And then on the, on the, on the flip side of that, you know, it's not, I mean, it's, it's a personal journey, but you're in a band, you know, you're making a record. It's like, so you have that extra pressure of just like, you know, like you feel it from like, okay, these guys laid down this great music, you know, it's my job now to, to, to finish it, you know? And then it's like, when you're kind of crumbling as a person, um, you know, it's like, it, it, it's, it sucks, but you know, the only way out is through type of type of mentality. So it's like, you just have to, you know, you have to, you have to finish it, you know? So I know for that, for, for me, yeah, yeah, we did, <laughs> you we did. did, we finished it, you know? And it's like, and that record for me, um, you know, I'm, I'm so proud of it and I'm so proud of, of my voice on it. And I'm so proud of the work that we all did together. Um, you know, a lot of the songs, you know, obviously History Stranglers, Shitty Future, 
Around the Horn, of course, which was uh, which was written famously about you, maybe not so famously, but uh, you know that song. I remember too with that song. You know, I, I, we we're nearing the point of the record where it was like, okay, we got to end this thing at some point, you know. And it was like, okay, like these three songs may, are the, like kind of the focus, and Around the Horn wasn't one of them. But I was like, literally, it was like my lifeline when during that whole like that whole uh, recording process towards the end when it got really bad, it was almost like a journal to me where it was like this basic drum beat, one guitar. And it was like, I would always just kind of go to that song whenever I was just so fucking pissed off or frustrated with the process or whatever. So I really wanted that song to be made and it dialogues kind of my frustration with the recording process. But Mm. it's also, uh, you know, it's also a song about, breaking through you know and 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 about and about facing things and dealing with it so you know there's so many uh you know so many moments on that record uh that i look back and just and just love man and the actual process of making it um was just so so incredible how would you how do you look back on that record fondly (laughs) it's i mean it's funny that like the thing that was the hardest to do is about my favorite thing on the whole record you know, I mean, I love listening to your voice on it, you know, because it literally, when you, when I hear a vocalist, like, I want to hear their personality. Like, I want to feel them. Like, I want to, I want it to be like, they're right here, like, just kind of grabbing me by the shirt collar and just, you know, doing whatever it is that they do right at me, you know, and we, you know, we got that on that record that's what it's like you're right there in my face howling and all that nice like that nice sizzly high end that i kept looking for <laughs> you know what when it wasn't there you know about it right away yeah nope. <laughs> yeah oh yeah i know it's like, and yeah it's it's funny i was like uh you know you have all these different experiences of of, of people who have recorded with you and and you can almost find comfort in reading through some of the experiences of people saying, you know, Oh, you know, I, I showed up to the studio and I, I said hello and to Michael and he just said, your voice sounds terrible. Get out of here. Get out, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> go, Doing Jonathan go, Davis. Go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he loves telling those stories too. Yeah, man. It's so, it's so, <laughs> so funny, you know, but it's like, I, really, really appreciate the full experience of making a record with you, of making Bronx 2 with you. And I know that, you know, the entire band did as well. And, you know, I'm really excited that, you know, we can have this conversation 15 years later, you know, right. about about stuff like this. And it still feels so good, you know, it feels so awesome. So, um, you know, we're, we're kind of doing a, we're, we're doing like a, a whole kind of anniversary for this record. We're going to re-release it on, on picture disc vinyl and uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And we're doing some, some extra stuff around it and giving it a little bit of love. So uh, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to kind of revisit this, you know, where we were before the record and, and who we were before the record and who we were after the record uh, was two completely different bands. I mean, you really, um, what we needed was to be tested. What we needed was to be pushed. And you did that the way no one else could have done it. And I think I've gone back a couple of times and I've wondered, you know, you think about timing and you think about, you know, if, you know, if, if it was the right time for that type of record. 
And for us, um, knowing everything that we've been through uh, as a band and, and that we exist on our own now and how hard we work and, you know, how day to day we, you know, pour our creative energy into everything that we do. That was something that we forged on that second record. And so I think, you know, looking back, it was the perfect time to, to go through that process and to make that record with you. Not only did we get an amazing record out of it, you know, but we got um, the foundation of work ethic and a bond to never give up, to always break through. And that's carried, you know, the, the Bronx is unstoppable, you know, because yeah. of that process, oh, yeah. you know, oh. like it, it just, it, it really is. And it, it taught, you know, it taught me so much individually, uh, obviously as a singer, uh, but as a person too, just being able to get through it and realizing, you know, that being in the process is just exactly that. You're just in it and you just got to keep fighting. You got to navigate your way through it as best you can. And looking back on it now, I have nothing but the best memories. And uh, and honestly, man, thank you so much for doing what you do, my man. It was it was such an incredible uh you know, era of the band, incredible record for the band and such an amazing time in, in my life going through all this stuff. I'm honored, man. I'm really honored. I'm proud of what we accomplished together, man. And I'm glad that 15 years Same later, here. people still love the record. I still love the record. You still love the record. Oh yeah. So, so that's a, a beautiful one. thing, man. So Michael, thank you very much for, for joining me here. Uh, yeah, man. 15, 15 year anniversary, my brother, stay <laughs> so safe awesome. up there in Canada. And, uh, Thanks, man. <laughs> all right, brother. I'll talk to you. Sir, have a good right. one. Take care, Michael. Yeah, you too, man. See ya. Oh, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. We are taking a quick commercial break to remind you that summer is in full swing. And there is no greater summer cocktail than the Jerry Loves Ginger cocktail. Now, if you never had one, I want you to get your pen and paper out, take some notes, and follow along because it gets real intense. One part Sailor Jerry Spiced Rum. Three parts ginger beer. That's it. Literally. You add the Sailor Jerry to an empty rocks glass. You fill it with ice. You top it with ginger beer. And if you're feeling freaky, you garnish it with a lime or some candied ginger or a hot dog or a burger or a french fry or whatever the hell you want. As long as the key components are Sailor Jerry Spiced Rum and ginger beer, you can't go wrong. And now before we dive into part two of the Bronx 2 15 year anniversary special featuring Bronx founding member and guitar player, the one and only Joby J. Ford, it's important to notate that while Joby Ford might be number one, his cell phone service is definitely not number one. It's not number two, it's not number three, I don't even think it's in the top 10. Joby's driving across country right now with his family. And unfortunately, there's some moments in this conversation where the cell phone service gets a little dicey. But this is a punk rock podcast, ladies and gentlemen. So every now and then you're going to have to deal with a little audio attitude. Okay? If you want to talk to the manager... You can email us at the Sailor Jerry Podcast at gmail.com. All right, back to the show.
Joby J. Ford. Oh, there, there you are. Nice, man. What's up? Dude, hiding out, dude. Hell yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, I wanted to do, um, you know, a song by song breakdown or at least just like a little bit of insight on every song. But I figure it would be good to start with uh, oh, Senor God. Hombre, with Senor Hombre de Tamale. So who, so did Tweety record that or where did that recording come from? Yeah, that was this dude. When I lived off Melrose and Normandy, there was this dude that would come through and he would sling tamales and tortas and everything out of a shopping cart. And he had the loudest voice. And so every morning at 7 a.m., this motherfucker would be like, tamales and tortas and, you know, like whatever it was. And I was just like, it was crazy. So, Beinhorn had like a some weird stereo recorder, and I was like, probably at that point staying in the studio as we did because the drive was so far down to Venice. Um, and I was like, Can you record this dude? Like, I got this idea just because it kept me up every single day. So it's kind of perfect. And it's, it's really like that whole neighborhood was absolutely crazy. You had an awesome spot, but it was smack dab in the middle of Salvadorian gangland. <laughs> oh, dude, I remember when the gang, that one night we went up, uh, you were coming over for some reason, and and we heard some gunshots, though, naturally. We went up to the roof to watch the gangs fight, and here comes Matt Cawthorn walking down the street, like... <laughs> <laughs> dude to do. I'm like, dude, <laughs> get in here. Good times, though. Oh, a lot of, lot of, lot of great memories. Yeah, man, absolutely. And uh, so I talked to Beinhorn a little bit, and one of the things that really made a big impression on me is the way he pushed us. How was that experience for you as the song generator on Bronx Two? I'm a lazy guitar player and I'm a lazy songwriter, and. I, I, I like that about playing guitar because it's like as a person who was classically trained in two instruments, like that's not fun because that's a grind. It's just nonstop practice and theory and all this crap that I just didn't give a fuck about. And if I was a real guitar player, then I would, I would play eight hours a day, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> give a shit about theory you know, try to learn scales. I don't know how to play a fucking scale. I don't know how to play, like, and I know like seven chords on a guitar, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just like, I don't, I don't, but I don't give a shit about that. You know, it's like the, the only thing I give a shit about is like playing something that like, I, dude, I want to hear that again. You know, like I, I want to listen to that again. Yeah. Like I like that. That's it. That's all I care about, you know? And so I, I enjoy the creation aspect of playing guitar I can give a shit about the technical side, but it's like, I enjoy making stuff. And so with working with Michael, because I'm a super lazy, you know, songwriter, guitar player, but I've also been on the other side of the coin where it's like, I know what it takes for like real, real talent. You know what I mean? Like, like people that are like dedicated to their craft, yeah. you know? And, and, um, and so for me, it was like, I, I know I could go a lot further. I could do more work. You know, but it, and it, it just got to the point where I just told him, I was like, you know, Michael, I'm not writing any more songs. And he goes, OK, <laughs> that's what I do with all everybody. I push them until they break. What did that do to your writing style? Did you gain anything out of that? Because we were still pretty young at that moment. You know what I mean? Like you didn't we had one record in us. 
but you know, did you learn a lot through writing all those songs or did you just go and go and go and that was it and you were done? You know, you know what, what, um, what I, I remember most about those days was that I remember Michael had a gigantic collection of music. And so I heard somebody say this once and they were like, you know, people from California listen to music in their cars and like people from New York listen to music, like, you know, on their headphones or their iPod, whatever. And, um, I, I just remember like always having a CD player and just like, and I would take all Michael's CDs and I would listen to them. And it was because he, he has such a great taste in music, you know, and all of the music that we listened to in between recording during making that record, it would just, it floored me, you know, because of his vast record collection, yeah. you know? And, and so I remember listening to just so much different music and, and which I feel is a really bad, like, well, for me is a really bad idea because I start kind of playing the stuff I'm like, I'm listening to, or, or I'm influenced by, you know, yeah. where it's like, if I just like don't listen to music, when I write music, I think it, it comes out better because it sounds like, you know, something I would, something I would do or a thought process I would have, whatever. But I remember feeling like, you know, my guitar playing was changing because a lot of the tunes I was listening to, you know, like, like that song, Dirty Leaves, like there's no way I would ever write that song five years ago. Dude, that makes a lot of sense. Cause I remember two of the big records, uh, in his spot that stood out to me were those, uh, that black exploitation collection was just absolutely insane. Dude, that was the best <laughs> record, dude. It was I, so I, good. I, I, it was so good. That record. And then he had, uh, Iggy pops, the idiot running around. He had a bunch of vinyl upstairs too. Um, you know, that we used to crank after, after a long day. So yeah, I, I totally forgot about that, dude. That's a good point. He had such an amazing, amazing music collection. So track one, small stone, uh, you know, an ass kicking first song on the album, but kind of not the most Bronx, especially at the time. And maybe even now it's a super like kind of chopped up fast, thrashy tune. What's your, uh, what's your, what's your take on that song? Um, the greatest thing memory I have of that song. I don't, I don't remember writing it, uh, but I remember we did an encore once and we, and we played that song and I, and I thought like, it was the fucking most hilarious moment of being in a band. People actually come out and play more music. They're cheering and you play a 30 second song. <laughs> <laughs> and they, and just, just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, great, the greatest encore ever written for sure for sure i know vocally that song has a big dillinger escape plan influence because we were touring a lot with them and uh in the uh high pitch kind of screaming in that song that's a definite shout out to the man greg pachado of dillinger escape plan nothing but love to those guys all right shitty future shitty future what this is uh you know probably between shitty future uh history stranglers and white guilt probably the three uh you know most popular songs on the record i remember uh you know riding uh with you going over the lyrics uh to this song on your living room couch and table uh which you know where a lot of the early bronx stuff uh went oh, yeah. let's give it a quick little pump
what uh what's your take on this song what's your you got any memories from it i do i do um <clears throat> and uh i'm gonna i'm gonna give this story about a 90 percent. this is what happened <laughs> but like a 10 percent, maybe i'm getting a few details wrong um our old manager jonathan daniel was in town and he uh came and and you know i was like hey let's go down to uh the studio and i because i need someone to record me i'm working on this song which was shitty future and i got to play drums and i can't start the you know the pro tools with uh, if i'm you know or something like that plus he's rich so i, I had him buy me a bottle of booze yeah. and um <clears throat> so I go down there and i and i and i play drums to it you know to to kind of the ideas that i had which if anybody knows me i am a terrible drummer and uh but i made i made i made jonathan um like record all that stuff and i remember showing it to norma and he was like right (laughs) (laughs) it's a cool beat or something like that and so i'm gonna give that a 90 percent possibility of truth and a 10 percent of maybe i got a few of those details wrong yeah yeah where'd you get that drum sound Yeah. And then lyrically that song, you know, comes from a lot of different places, but the sole inspiration was uh, Jen Stilwell, who used to be, we used to work for. Oh yeah. 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 yeah, She was, yeah. She was uh, Rob Stevens assistant and uh, she was just an out of control human being. And uh, when we were in New York one morning, uh, Jorma and I ended up meeting her for, for, uh, for breakfast at some point. And she came, come, she came around the block, just dressed like hot garbage, you know, like she was from the shitty future. That's where the line comes from. And then, uh, you know, we just kind of ran with it from there. But one of my favorite Bronx songs. Where does it rank for you? Is it up in the? Is it top ten, top five? Yeah, I like them all, dude. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. The uh, the the sequence is fucking wild, man. So it goes, it goes his shitty future and the history stranglers just boom. And, uh, you know, this song, obviously huge song for us, uh, just an amazing memory uh, making this song on the record because at least for me, uh, I was talking to Beinhorn about it. I remember, you know, one of like the purest memories I have of recording this record uh, was the first time screaming motherfucker. I want your blood, like in that vocal box that we had set up. And it was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a, it was such an awesome moment. Um, what, uh, what's, what, what do you got on histories? What do you think about this song? I remember, playing the demo for for Beinhorn and he he said Jesus Christ do you think you have enough compression on that but <laughs> 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 I was like uh, uh, I don't I don't know I got pro tools 2 days ago <laughs> yeah. sound, sound good <laughs> yeah it sizzles yeah, a lot of sizzle on that um I remember it being an epic kind of drum war uh recording that michael you know was making dorman do some wild beats yeah i remember them, them fighting about sure. it 
probably one of those songs I think we always play. Yeah, for sure, man. And it hits like a fucking ton of bricks. The drums sound amazing. The guitar sounds fucking insane. Uh, I, I really dug the uh, like the bass drum kind of vocal breakdown. You know, that's something that we yeah, don't I remember, really do a lot of, dude, you know? Dude, you know what's crazy is I have um, the demos for that song. Like, I, I found them when I, when I was moving. Yeah, dude. It, it, you, dude, you would laugh hearing it, dude. It was like a terrible song. <laughs> like literally dude <laughs> yeah I, dude i have no recollection of the demo at all i fucking love oh, it man here. dude it, it dude it sucks it sucks it's great i love it uh next track oceans of class which you know when i listened to this song i totally fucking forgot about it and uh it's a fu- it's an awesome fucking song man Like I, I totally forgot about this song. I remember uh, coming home from the Venice studio and, uh, you know, I was stuck on this song big time. It was eating my lunch lyrically. And I got out in the ocean uh, in Huntington. Uh, it was kind of relatively just kind of new to, to living in Huntington. And I was out in the ocean just swimming around. And, uh, you know, the current was going and I was just swimming. And all of a sudden it just kind of, like it just made sense to me. I was like, okay, I'm going to go with this kind of idea for this song and see what happens. And I was able to flush out the lyrics and finally uh, get the song written. So that's something that I remember about this tune, listening back to it. Uh, it's got a fucking awesome vibe to it, man. What do, what do you think about this one? Um, I think your lyrics were really great. Like it's, they're like, uh, I, I've always loved that song. And I think, you know, you say some, some pretty cool words. And Oceans of Glass is an open chord song, which to me sounds like the Sunset Strip. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of good. It does have a little bit of a Sunset Strip vibe to it. So the next song uh, is Dirty Leaves, which was a super important song for us. And uh, one of the coolest... uh, Not at the time. Not at the time, no. (laughs) That was one of the uh, first times that you and I had written... Like it was weird because you 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 wrote the chorus to that song, and I remember you coming to me and had the song and had the chorus, and uh, it was obviously really insane and 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 beautiful. And it just we were able to like you know I I had some stuff written that ended up be, taking up some good space in the verses, and then it was like the song you know basically really came together kind of simply you know what i mean like the recording process of it we added the bridge and stuff like that i remember with Beinhorn. Beinhorn wanted oh the- god like that's the song that made us do mariachi You know, we got asked to play that acoustic thing. And then, um, you know, we started doing a mariachi. And that that song was the catalyst, I think, to that band. Yeah, absolutely it was, man. And that was kind of the first time, you know, it was like, I think on the first record, we 
you know, we're pretty much, you know, a hundred miles an hour, uh, except for maybe strobe life at the end, but that was still kind of in the same, um, you know, RPM range, I guess. But on the second record, we kind of branched out, uh, twice with, uh, you know, the first one being dirty leaves and then the second song being safe passage, but, uh, dirty leaves, I, you know, I think is, you know, one of the coolest songs that we've ever done. And like you said, it, it did uh, foreshadow, you know, Mariachi El Bronx. It completely set that up um, and kind of put the foot in the door for us to go that place. So, um, dude, I, re- I remember trying to, I, I remember uh, when we were working on that track, I came in and I got on that gigantic vocal mic you were singing into. And I was like, hey, man, I, I got this idea. I want to put some Spanish guitar on this song. <laughs> and I was just like, just doing whatever that thing is and and michael's like yeah it doesn't sound good at all i was like okay yeah right. you know you're bringing up like i totally forgot about the kind of struggle recording that song with like establishing the vibe because it is like the very like it is kind of like the bass lines like the do 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 you know what i mean like it's like i remember we were mm-hmm. kind of trying to fight that a little bit and uh and and Beinhorn, i think won that one i think he was you know i think we kind of gave in to uh you know, to that, but, uh, it is what it is. It's all right. I think that's why the, uh, we've done a couple versions of that song, of that song over the years. Yeah. I think <laughs> we know? actually, I, I, I think, did. wait, 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 dude, wait, dude. Did we cover ourselves at one point? Yeah. Did we cover that song in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. All right. So the next track is, uh, a fucking funny one, man. And I was laughing about this when it came on. Cause I had totally forgotten about it. We used to play it, uh, every now and then, but it's a song called Transsexual Blackout, The Movement. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's a straight-up rocker. Uh, it is a straight-up, through-and-through rocker, but a super funny song to, like, listen back to for some reason. Like, it, it reminds me so much of just, like, early, early Bronx. And, you know, the, the, the wedding dress line, I think it was Jersey or somewhere. It was a Halloween night, and uh, we were able to find... Uh, bridesmaids dresses at a thrift store and a, a bridal gown. Uh, so I was the bride, obviously the band was the bridesmaids and uh, we played a show and it was absolute chaos uh, and the wedding dress got torn apart. And so there's a, a wedding dress referenced in that song and, and that's where it kind of came from. But that song is dude, it's funny when you go back and listen to it, it's cool as fuck. The Brit, the breakdown, super cool. The, I don't want romance. I just need a second chance. But uh, what uh, what do you think about that one? I honestly don't even remember how the song goes, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, here you go. So moving on to track eight of the uh, Bronx two album is one. It's my sleeper favorite song on the record. And uh, for a long time, we played this song live. And even when we were recording it, I just thought, man, 
this song has such a cool movement. The guitar part uh, and the drums, um, they flowed so good in this song. And it's uh, it's mouth money. I've always loved that song. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a it's a it's a standout track for sure on the record. Um, what do you uh, what do you remember about that? That guitar part, because that's such a fucking cool part. I think I don't remember too much about it, to be honest with you. I remember there were so many songs that we wrote in the studio because we were in there so for so fucking long that like I, I know like a lot of those songs like made the record, but I I, I don't yeah I, I think that that one I think that one was a downtown rehearsal song, pretty sure. Yeah, uh, I think I think it was too. I think we had that like in the original demo batch. I think so. Yeah, yeah. There's dude on that CD that I found. There's 45 songs. Oh, dude. Yeah, we got we got to hear those. Oh, we got to go back and listen ridiculous. to those. Yeah. I remember this song too has uh, that guitar lead. The and there's a drum break. It was such a cool part of that song. It's always my favorite part live too. It ripped. you know ripping ripping rips <laughs> turns out turns out ripping rips all right so this, sure. is a, this is a funny song on the on the record that we always not always but for the most part play live which is rape zombie and this was when i went back and listened to it i was like oh my god like this song sounds so slow and so i mean it still sounds dope but it's so slow compared to how we play it live and even like the energy is a little a little weird on it but this is baritone, right? That song we wrote in Venice, I remember that. Yep. And it was there was this weird um bass in the studio. Um it was uh made by Burns or Baldwin. Yeah. And it was like this weird split sound jazz bass. It was like this I don't really know what it was. It was just one of those like creature guitars, you know, that <laughs> Check, check this know, thing out. Yeah, <laughs> you know, check out my inner wizard. You know, uh, you know, one of those guitars, and um, you know, you know, just because Michael the way he was was just, yeah. you know, kicking my ass, and um, <clears throat> you know, wrote that song in the studio, and I um, I heard it the other day someplace and i was just like <laughs> it is so slow yeah it's because so we, slow because we just learned it like yeah and, you know played it in the studio so yeah that was a that was a, a ch child of the uh, environment yeah for sure because i do remember 
um, you know, you being like really, really taken to that instrument, like you were, you were pretty into it. And that was, that song is all that, like that whole riff, the do, 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 do. Like that was all just you kind of messing around on that thing. And it is funny because like, you know, like live and even, uh, even if we're not playing it necessarily fast, the song has so much more like aggression and bite to it. And it's just kind of something that, you know, when the chorus kicks in, you know, on the record, you get a little bit of it, but it doesn't have, the recording does not have the same like attack. Yeah, that, it, that sounds it, you know? it, sound, it sounds stunned. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's the does. best way I can put it. Yeah, for sure, for sure, man. And it's one of those. Uh, it's it's a it's a Bronx classic, though. I I do. I remember when when the record came out and we kind of started touring on that. The first time we started doing that song live, and when that kind of that that break came in with the and then and then and the you know after midnight the drinks can only get stronger. I remember the first time people like kind of screaming that part back from the crowd and stuff like that. It was pretty cool, man. And that part's always been uh, kind of yeah, man. You have. You have some good lyrics in that song. Hey, man, you know, there's there's a lot of good shit all over this record, man. But that's I think that, you know, Rave Zombie is is a is a good tune, man. It's a good tune. It just didn't really, you know, for some reason, the record version is just a little it's a little it's a little soft. It's or stunned. Little it's stunned. It's stunned. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, we got Around the Horn, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, a Bronx classic at this point. But. Um, you know, I was talking to Beinhorn about it. Obviously, he knew the kind of song was was about him indirectly or directly, whatever. And, you know, it's like it, it ended up becoming one of those songs that we, uh, you know, a lot of the times end our set with or just have Ken just solo the fuck out on. Well, yeah, because Ken it just lends itself to it. And Ken is just the man. Ken just shredding, dude. <laughs> I think that that song, the kind of simplicity of the structure and and the simplicity of the recording, honestly, um, you know, obviously we wigged out a little bit in the end on the recording and, and through the on and on and ons, you know, kind of went that way with it. But it's still a pretty minimal uh, song, you know what I mean? Just like structure wise, just the base of it is just super minimal. And it's a cool song to play live because we can just add all sorts of rad ass shit on top of it. Check this out. This is a song that honestly I don't think we've ever played live. And every time I go back and listen to it, I'm like, fuck, man, this song fucking rips. But there's literally like a zillion parts in this song. And that song is Three Dead Sisters. Go! 
this song, this song, it it's a hard motherfucking song. Um, but it's like it's one of those Bronx songs that's got a there's there's only there's not that many of them, but every now and then you get a Bronx song that has way too many parts in it. <laughs> and, uh, that, that 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 happens all the time. <laughs> I think I think I think this is one of them. What's uh do you do you remember this song? Do you got any uh any no. uh no? no? This song fucking rips, man. I mean, I uh, like parts of it. I don't I don't I don't recall um what didn't you write this song about like um like Manson stuff or something? Yeah, I just I went to a weird ass place and just tried to write like a super violent kind of song. And uh and I mean it it happened, you know what I mean? I don't think it's the, the you know the best thing I've ever written, but it's definitely a, a weird trip. Uh it is pretty nonstop and it's kind of long too, but you know, it's one of those ones that I think if we could get over uh, the annoying part of like relearning it and rehearsing it a zillion times by the time it became kind of like, you know, automatic, I bet it would be pretty ripping live, but that's a lot to ask. I don't know if we're going to ever get there. People listening to this that like that song. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. <laughs> Time, will tell. Time will tell. Time will tell. All right. So we got two more songs on the record. And it's funny because I can't believe just looking at the sequence again that these are like the last two songs. Of course, uh, you know, White Guild as an ending makes sense to me, but uh, track uh, 12, which is, you know, I know I've said this before, but it's the one Bronx song that I just don't like is Safe Passage. I think Beinhorn really thought this was going to be like a sick song and it does the guitar part. Everyone else's parts are, are dope. I just never felt comfortable in this song. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, like, I don't know. It kind of had like a, I think it wanted to be like an early, like almost like a murder city song or something, but I just couldn't, I just felt like a loser on that song. I just couldn't, I just felt so <laughs> dumb. <laughs> Um, White Guilt, last song on the record. You know, I, the thing I remember about this song is uh, a funny, like, lyric anecdote. Initially, I wanted this song so bad. It was initially, it was, uh, Hey, Pretty Baby was the lyric. And uh, I was, like, so dead set on that because I thought it had, like, a New York Dolls type of vibe. And it was just, like, I thought it was so cool. And you and Beinhorn... Uh, showed me the light because you guys were like, that's not like, that's so like, you can't, it, like there's a zillion songs like that. It's not good. It needs like an actual lyric. Like, and so uh, it was you guys that came up with LA Lady. And, uh, and it was like, I remember being like, fuck, like, I don't, you know, like, I don't know. I was, I was so hard for me to let go pretty, <laughs> let go of pretty baby. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, dude, that that song was completely put together by Minor. Yeah. You know, because I was sitting there and, you know, for like, you know, day 19, I'm working on guitar sounds or something. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't that. But uh, I was sitting there like fucking that. And he goes, he had talk back. And he goes, you have to write that. You have to make that a song. I remember that. And I was like, ah, I'm fucking done writing songs. He's like, no, nah, man. That's really good. But that guitar, yeah. that guitar intro, dude, is so good. It's it is fucking awesome. I dude, it, it was it wasn't anything. Like it was just me fucking around and my yeah. was like, oh make that a song. And I was like, ah, you do. <laughs> why, why is he always listening? <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, it, and and that one was cool because Gilby uh played the guitar solo on that. And it was yeah. um, you know, Gilby did our first record and it was so so dope to have him, you know, come in and be a part of, you know, the second thing. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, Gilby Clark, and uh, he he was he was the man. He did come in and play solo on that. And this was like uh, going back a little bit to Ken Horn. I remember when this record was done. You you were kind of like we're gonna need to get another guitar player after this after this record. Oh yeah, well well because we were going on tour with like. Mastodon and Converge, and yeah. it was like, it was like, yo, we need our guitar game. You know, all all that's that's the uh, that's the wrap on the song by song uh, analysis of uh, of Bronx too, which is really cool uh, to go back and and kind of you know dive into each one of those songs and and just kind of think back on them. But one thing I did want to ask you about, Jobs, before I let you go, is. Uh, you know, I don't know if if people out there are aware. I know most Bronx bands are, but you design, uh, you know, you do the album art. You design the record covers for for all the Bronx, uh, all the Bronx stuff, all the full lengths and stuff like that. And uh, this record, um, you know, there was, I mean, this is old. It could be a whole nother conversation. How many funny like art journeys we took on this record, but uh, <laughs> uh, specifically, you know, about the record cover and about the record art. I was wondering if you could just kind of. Um, you know, just tell everybody a little bit about that process and how you came up with the cover, how you shot it, how you put it together. Um, I didn't, I actually didn't do a whole lot for it. Uh, it was, it was my cousin Tyler, uh, was in town and, you know, we, you know, go way back. We're OG skateboard, you know, fanatics. And he came out to LA and stayed with me for a bit and wanted to, you know, get into the design biz. And so I was like, all right, well, you know, I'm working on this cover for my band and let's go to this, uh, this costume shop out in, out in the Valley. So we get out there and we're like, uh, you know, we just want to peruse the aisle for, you know, some idea, something. And, and they were like, uh, which studio are you associated with? And we were like, uh, <laughs> mm, uh, and, um, you know, Disney. Tom <laughs> <laughs> He's like, okay, go ahead. I was like, what? So we rented that, all that shit. That's my cousin Tyler on the cover. And we rented all that shit. We're like, yeah, we're just going to do a test, costume test desk costume desk <laughs> and they're like okay it's on disney right we're like yep 
And so we went and, and uh, my old homie, uh, Aaron Farley, shot the cover in my my place in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, and we, we superimposed him in space, <laughs> as we all were yeah. at that time, you know, metaphorically and physically. And, uh, and, and that, you know, turned out to be the cover. And uh, the actual, uh, the glove that he has his hands on, uh, we initially shot as, do you remember those things The you put your fingers on them and like electricity, yeah. what yeah. were those called? Uh, I don't, I don't remember what they were called, but yeah, the, the electric lines, the, uh, the, they would just follow your fingers yeah, and yeah. connect to your fingers and move all over. Yeah. Yeah. Originally it was that. And then we, we had to throw something in the middle of it because it looked weird, but. Okay. So song, you know, song by song basis album recorded in 2005 came out in 2006 Recorded at the Palladrome in Venice Beach, California, by Michael Beinhorn with assistance from Ross Hogarth and and uh, uh, a lonely English man named Nick Page. Uh, Dude, Nick Page, bitch. Yeah, initial initial Bronx lineup of you know Joby J. Ford, Jorma Vic, James Tweedy, Matt Cawthron. When you think about the art, you think about the songs, you think about the recording experience, you think about where the band was before. And, you know, where we went on afterwards and the fact that we're still making music and, and, and things are still progressing forward, you know, where, where do you, like, what do you think about this record when you, when, when you look back at it, when you think about it as a body of work, you know, what does it mean to you? I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot about recording, about our microphones, outboard gear, how to write music and, and to try everything you know that record's probably not our most punk album but it kind of set the footprint to go to a lot of different areas which is like really what i like just because i like so many different kinds of music that you know i think it kind of like really kind of started with that record you know because but i just want to do something else you know (laughs) and and it's like I think I think that record was pivotal and started our mariachi band. Um, strangely enough, which is weird, you know, it was fun. It was, it was cool. Like, oh, like it was one of the best experiences of my life. Honestly, you know. Yeah, man, I agree. And I was talking to Beinhorn about that. It's like you know, it, there's so much that I can look back on and just see how it changed me as a singer, as a band member, as a musician, as an artist. You know, I think everything that we started, the ideology behind starting the Bronx and doing stuff different, always trying to like, you know, push ourselves to uncomfortable creative places and do that. I think the mission statement, you know, might've been the first record, but everything that we are now was definitely cemented, I think, in the process and in the recording and the writing and in the release of the second record. You know what I mean? I feel like we just, that's how we kind of figured it all out, you know? Well, Mike, you know, Michael's a great teacher, you know, maybe not a great communicator, (laughs) (laughs) but a great teacher, you know, and, and, you know, I learned so much from, I'm just listening, you know, and, and working hard and, and he's, you know, he pushed me to about as, as far as I could go. And, I, and, and, you know, I appreciated it, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm you know, it, it was fun. Like, I'm, I'm glad we got to have that experience. Yeah, man. Me too, man. Me too, brother. And it's, uh, it's cool looking back on it, you know, 15 years later, released, uh, July 18th, 2006. So, 
Um, you know, Jobs, I appreciate you uh, taking the time going down this road uh, on this record. I know people are, are going to be stoked on it. And it's been, you know, it's been pretty cool, man. If you don't take the time to appreciate these little anniversaries, you know, what's the fucking point, you know? So, um, you know, 15 years of, of Bronx too, um, you know, and, uh, that means, you know what that means? That means one's turning 20 eventually. It's like the next oh, year God. or two. <laughs> oh God. It's all happening. Yeah. I know. I know. But man, I, I appreciate it, Jobs. Uh, and, uh, yo, you know what, what, what else is right about the record is Mike Shipley. Oh, rest in peace, dude. hundred percent, hundred percent. Mike Shipley, legendary, uh, mixer legendary, you know, in the music biz in general, he Def Leppard, right? Yeah. Def Leppard, um, Def Leppard and, um, Shania Twain, like all the Mutt Lang stuff. He did all that. That's right. And you, um, you know what? You spent a good amount of time with him in the mixing process, right? Because I went over there I, once to like re-sing one thing and you were in the thick of it. And his wife was uh, the waitress oh, Wings. Uh, oh, yeah, dude. Dude, it was uh, hilarious, dude. She would just sit there and just come in and make snacks, dude, and bring him into like the studio. And I was like, you're the chick from Wings. Yeah. <laughs> 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 in sweats, you know, <laughs> fucking hilarious. And, uh, and, and, you know, RIP man, he had a, he had a weird one. Brian Wolgamuth, his assistant, you know, uh, turned into a power lifter. Well, and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, if you can still hear him lifting. If you, if you, uh, you know, if you tilt your ear. To the West, but yeah, you know, Mike Shipley, I, that's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great call because obviously legendary mixer and the fact that, you know, we did have him and Beinhorn on the same record, uh, is incredible. And a little random anecdote I forgot was Butch Walker, uh, was involved a little bit on white guilt. I at least, uh, went over to see him, uh, at some point to try to work on some melody stuff. And I think maybe it was the pre-chorus that we might've worked out. Cause I know there was a lot of, dude. I did, went into you, that you, song. You, did you want to hear like the funniest Butch Walker story? It's like I, I came in the studio while you guys were tracking White Guilt, and he was like, "Hey man, you want some wine?" And I was like, uh, "All right, man." And I and I drank some. I was like, "Man, this is pretty good." He goes, "I know. I bought it." <laughs> I was like, "I was like, what? Like the bottle?" He goes, "No, I bought it all." <laughs> I was like, "What?" And he goes, "Yeah." I'm not, this wine tastes so good. I bought everything they made. <laughs> it's got that Avril Lavigne money, man. Uh, dude, it's got that pink, pink money, dude. Yeah. Uh, dude I was fucking, dude, I was dying laughing, dude. That's I was like, I was like, dude, it's fucking hilarious. Dude. I'll take it. All of it. I'll take it. All of it. Yeah, no, <laughs> Butch is great though. Atlanta, yeah, awesome dude. dude. Like, awesome dude. Su- super fun. Great guitar player too. Yep. Awesome, dude. Right on, Jobs. I'll let you get going and, uh, you know, have a good night, my brother. Oh, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of episode 15 of the Sailor Jerry podcast. Special Bronx 2 15-year anniversary edition. Thank you very much to our amazing guest, the one and only Michael Beinhorn. 
You can follow him online, Michael Beinhorn on Instagram, Michael Beinhorn on Facebook. He's more of a Facebook guy. Joby J. Ford at Touch Douglas on Instagram. As always, thank you everybody out there for listening, man. This was a really cool episode to put together. A lot of hard work. So I hope you guys enjoyed it, man. Thank you to all the Bronx fans out there. Thank you for everybody supporting Bronx 2 for 15 years. Appreciate you. Love you. As always, you can follow me at 213MattMan, at Sailor Jerry, at Bronxovision. Sailor Jerry's spiced rum is made the old school way. 92 proof. Bold and smooth as hell. We'll see you next time. Peace.